side of their house or their apartment or maybe most often uh, their car. Uh, One guy that I used to work with landscaping, he seemingly got himself locked out of his work truck all of the time. I don't even know how he did it. Another friend of mine, uh, she was driving me and some friends to a church barbecue one time and she managed to get all of us locked outside of her car with it still running. We have no idea how she did that. But then she told us that this happened all the time. She had done it at least five times. How in the world? Another friend of mine uh, was off buying a Christmas tree from someone online in the middle of winter. And he came back to his car with this Christmas tree and discovered that he had locked his keys inside of it. And so he was stuck without a jacket, with a Christmas tree, in the middle of winter, outside of his car. So he called a locksmith and it was going to take them quite a while to get there and get him back inside of his car. And he was too embarrassed to go and talk to the homeowner. And so he just ran around the block in circles to try and stay warm until eventually the locksmith got there. We can laugh about these stories after the fact, of course. They're pretty funny. But the truth remains that getting locked out of something is really unfortunate. It's something that nobody enjoys. It feels awful. And that is so much more true when we're not talking about something really trivial, like getting locked out of your car for just a little while when picking up a Christmas tree. How much more true is this when we're talking about something not temporal, not something that lasts for a little while, but rather something eternal? How much more when we're talking about getting locked out of not our car, but rather our good, our great God's blessed presence forever. That's what we just read about in Lord's Day 31, isn't it? Being locked out of God's presence and locked into eternal despair away from the God of everything that's good. Today we're talking about keys, not of a car, but keys that can open up the way back to God himself. The keys of the kingdom of heaven. And what we'll see is that by God's grace, the gate is open and we're all called to come in. And we'll see this in two parts. First, we'll see the key of Christ. And then secondly, we'll see the keys of the church. First of all, the key of Christ, then the keys of the church. And we've read the context for this discussion in uh, Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis, there we read something astounding, something beautiful to just picture in each of our minds. We read that there was a time when God himself came down to walk in the Garden of Eden with his people in the cool of the day. What a beautiful picture. Can you imagine walking in a lush garden in the cool of the day with someone that you love? Well, how about with God himself? Being able to walk and talk with the God who created everything, including a very good garden and very good people. Having this perfect kind of relationship with a creator who who knit us together in our mother's womb. Yet when Adam and Eve rebelled against God in blatant disobedience, which we read, they were sent out. Uh, We actually read in Genesis 3 that God drove man out of the garden. The picture that we get there is of something that comes up later on in the Old Testament as well. When God sends his people into the land of Canaan, we read there about God constantly driving out his enemies. Well, here we read about God driving out 
us as though we're enemies, driving mankind away from his presence. We couldn't live forever anymore in this beautiful garden. And worse, we couldn't live with him forever anymore. And we read in a sense that the gate was locked. To bar us from paradise, God put angels there on guard, we read, the cherubim. And he equipped the angels with a flaming sword. The way back to God was sealed by angels and a sword. It was sealed seemingly for good. If you keep on reading in Genesis, you'll see that a few chapters later, in Genesis 11, you'll come to a, uh, what's probably a familiar story, uh, the Tower of Babel. And there you see man's attempt to get back to heaven. People gather together and they say, uh, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. But yet, of course, this doesn't work. It's not possible for sinful people to earn their way, to work their way back into heaven. The sinful men failed. And Moses, the writer of Genesis, even seems to mock them. He says that as they were trying to build this tower to heaven, we're told that the Lord had to come down to see it. Isn't that a funny picture? People like us trying to build a tower so great it gets back to God in heaven, and the Lord needs to come down to take a look. Get a picture of him stooping down, squinting, to see this feeble attempt to get back to him. In other parts of the Bible, we hear about what it really takes for people like us to get back to God. It's not a tall tower. Of course not. We read about that in Psalm 118, in our call to worship, and then sung about it again as well. I wonder if you noticed the words that we, we read and then we sang over and over. We called the gate of the Lord the gate to get back to God. We called them the gates of of righteousness. We sang based on Psalm 118 that it's the righteous who are free to enter back to God's presence. And so we need to ask today and every day, is that you? When we sang those words, was it talking about you? Was it talking about me? Are we the righteous? If you look over your past week, maybe even your past day, if you look at all your actions, all your words, all of your thoughts, were they righteous? If someone else, an external auditor, came in and looked over what we said and did and thought, would they conclude, yes, this person can enter these gates that we joyfully sang about? For me, at least for each one of us, really, the answer is no. None of us is righteous, not even one. And shockingly, when you get to the beginning of the New Testament, then Jesus comes and he doesn't lower the standard at all. Instead, he seems to make it even more strict, doesn't he? In the Sermon on the Mount. There we read that Jesus says the same thing, but in a more shocking way. The Ten Commandments that we heard read earlier, well, Jesus comes and he counts anger with murder. He counts lust with adultery. He points to the greatest, the most righteous people that everyone knew in Jerusalem at the time. The scribes and Pharisees. People who studied the law, who devoted their lives to trying to keep these laws perfectly. He points to them. These people who made up additional laws 
around the Ten Commandments and other commandments to try and far, stay as far from breaking them as possible. Jesus points to them, and he tells all of us, unless your righteousness exceeds that of these men, the scribes and the Pharisees, he says you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Brothers and sisters, the gate to God is locked by nature. Because of our own rebellion, our own sin, God put up angels, a flaming sword, to keep us away. It seems that the, the gate is barred and that there's no hope. We desperately need somebody, someone else, not any of us, who can let us in. And that's the good news, the hint, the glimmer of good news that we got in Genesis 3. There we saw God's grace. Because before he even sends mankind away from him, before he drives Adam and Eve away from the garden, already then he promises to send a savior. One of the descendants of Adam and Eve who can deliver them from Satan and bring them back to God. And I've mentioned before in another sermon uh, that when I was growing up, my parents had a fish and chip store. And I lived on the second story, uh, right above it. And uh, I always thought it was pretty cool growing up when I was a kid that I just had 24-7 access to this fish and chip store. I could go down there for food. I could go and get drinks. When my friends came over, we could go hang out in the restaurant for some reason because that's a cool thing to do. Uh, I felt like that was pretty spectacular. But what was even better was when eventually my parents, they gave me my own key for the store. Then I could go in myself without asking for permission. And better than that, I could bring other people to go in with me without anyone's permission. Being a key holder was a pretty cool thing. I was authorized to just go in and out at my whimsy and bring others in too. And in the Old Testament, especially uh, specifically in Isaiah 22, we read uh, of a much more important key holder than me. There we read that the kings of Israel, they had key holders too. They owned the key not to a small fish and chip store, uh, but rather to the king's palace. They had access to the palace, they had access to the throne room, and they had access actually to the king of Israel. That is a lot of authority that they had. They had an important job, and the most important part of their job was that they could authorize others to come into the presence of the king. If anyone wanted to go and see the king of Israel, they needed to go through this key holder. And brothers and sisters, if we look to Revelation 3, verse 7, there we find some truly good news. There we see Jesus himself speaking in Revelation 3, verse 7. And Jesus refers to himself as the Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David, the One who opens and no one will shut. The one who shuts and no one opens. You see how remarkable what Jesus is saying there is. Jesus is saying something remarkable, not just about an earthly king, not just about King David, who is long dead at this point. He's talking about the true king of Israel. Someone greater than any earthly king, greater than King Charles and his coronation yesterday. Greater than King David or King Solomon. Jesus is talking about a far greater king of a far greater kingdom. The king of the whole universe. 
the heavenly king that we were driven away from as enemies. The good news is, the good news of Jesus Christ is that there is a truly righteous one. There's a holy one. There's a true one. God kept his promise at the beginning, even though he didn't have to. There was no reason for him to bring us back other than that he wanted to. He sent Jesus Christ, the one who truly had righteousness far exceeding that of the scribes and Pharisees. The one you could look at any human being and see, as we heard earlier today, Jesus is better. He is kinder. He is more just. He is more holy. Jesus is the greatest of all time, as we heard. This one had righteousness exceeding everyone's. His hands were clean and his heart was pure. And more than that, this greatest one of all time, he came down and he gave up his life that we might come back to God. He had clean hands, unlike us. And he gave up his clean hands to the cross that our filthy hands might be washed clean. He gave up his pure heart so that our desperately sick hearts might be forgiven. Jesus Christ came down. He died and defeated death so that he might have the key. You can see that in Revelation 1 and Revelation 3. He he tells us that he has the key over death and Hades and the key of David. He tells us that he, because of who he is, because he's the superlative Savior, He's the one who can bring anyone here, anyone out there, anyone at all, back to the king. He has the key. He is authorized. Jesus is the one who can free us from death and hell. He's the one who defeated Satan and opened up the gates back to God. He tells us, I am the gate. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And the way back to the Father is through me, Jesus says. As the one with the keys, he can bring us back to God no matter who we are, no matter how sinful, no matter how shameful or weak. We can turn from our sin to Christ and trust him. And like I mentioned before, it was nice when I became a key bearer of my parents' restaurant. Uh, But my authority never came close to that of Christ's authority over heaven, even though I was just talking about a a little store. It's one thing to be able to go in somewhere and Uh, another to get a key and be allowed to let others in, but that's the furthest I ever got. But what's the ultimate authorization you can get with a key? It's when you have so much access to a place that you're allowed to give somebody else the key. I was never allowed to do that with my parents' restaurant. If I ever gave someone else the key or made a copy, I think I would have lost my key privileges. But the good news of Jesus Christ, this one who is authorized to go into God's presence and bring us there too, he has so much authority, he's allowed to entrust others with the keys. And as we read in Lord's Day 31, he's done exactly that. He's entrusted the keys to the church. That's our second point. The keys of the church. As we read in uh, Lord's Day 31, based on Matthew 16, And 18, Jesus Christ has given the key of preaching and discipline. 
And he calls the church, first of all, to preach the bad news and to never shy away from the bad news. Having obtained the key and opening the way back to God, Jesus sends out his apostles and the church, and especially church leaders, to go and preach bad news first. The bad news that we heard about before, the bad news of a closed kingdom, of a locked gate, the bad news of Genesis chapter 3. As we read in Lord's Day 31, question and answer 84, the kingdom of heaven is closed when it is proclaimed and testified to all unbelievers and hypocrites that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them as long as they do not repent. That is where preaching starts, by warning people of this heavy, heavy truth. On your own, you're locked out. By nature, you have no access to God. And if you look at the world, you look at the brokenness, you'll see that this is the cause. We have no access to God. Our our relationship is broken and wrath is coming for our rebellion. And so our great Savior sends out the church to preach the bad news, to pave the way for the excellent news, the great news, the news that we all need, the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news that this God is so gracious and so great that he sent the Savior he promised immediately after the rebellion. He sent one to come down and keep the commandments for us to die in our place. And through him, the gate of heaven has been flung open. As the Catechism summarizes so beautifully, the kingdom of heaven is opened when it is proclaimed to every believer that God has really forgiven all their sins for the sake of Christ's merits as often as they by true faith accept the promise of the gospel. There are two main ways that this glorious message is applied. The first key is preaching and the second is church discipline. As one commentary on the uh, catechism helpfully explains, uh, in reality, of course, you could say that there's only one key back to God. That's the key we've been talking about. The key of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ. But the key of preaching and of church discipline are how Jesus has commanded the church to apply this good news to us. So first of all, that's the point of preaching. That's what we do here each week again. Preach two sermons every Sunday. We preach that Jesus... bought the key to heaven with his own blood and he entrusted it to the church to make sure that people know the gate is closed by nature. But there's a way back. I love how Charles Spurgeon emphasizes this. Charles Spurgeon, you might know, is affectionately called the Prince of Preachers and for good reason. And the thing he emphasizes unapologetically is that no matter what, we must preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the ultimate message of the church. And Charles Spurgeon said it powerfully in one sermon. He said, There's no Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. This is the one thing we should judge every sermon by. I ask that you'll please hold my sermons to it. If I'm falling short here, let me know. Because Jesus has given us preaching as a key to open heaven. And so every week, Jesus Christ must be preached and held up as the way back to God. 
Because otherwise, we're hopeless. Otherwise, there is no way back to God. If we come to church and we preach about sin, but not about Jesus Christ, if we preach about God's law, but not about Christ, then where are we left? We're left at the end of the sermon side by side with Adam and Eve, locked outside of the garden, an angel guarding there, a sword, no way back, convicted of our sin, with this law put in front of us that we cannot stack up to. We can never stack up to it. We break it every time. And if we come to church and we just preach about God without Christ, we have the exact same thing. We hear about this great God, this amazing God, this beautiful God that we want to worship, we want to adore, we want to walk with Him in the cool of the garden, but we can't. If we don't preach Christ, He's on the other side of the gate, the other side of the fence. We can't get there. We're not righteous. We need to preach about sin, of course. We need to preach about the the nature and the attributes of God, absolutely. But when we preach about Jesus Christ, then something remarkable happens. When you hear about a crucified Savior, then we have the key. Then we read here in Lord's Day 31, a marvelous thing happens. The gates of heaven, picture the gates of of heaven. When we preach about Christ crucified, the gates of heaven swing open for you, for me, to walk back to this great God, sinful as we are, to walk back to him and be forgiven and be transformed. God, by his grace, uses preaching to open up heaven to people like us. That's not the only key that he uses. Secondly, we read in Lord's Day 31, based on uh, Matthew 18, which you can read yourself later, it matches very closely with what we read in Lord's Day 31, that God not only opens and closes the kingdom of heaven through preaching, but also by church discipline. And now that's a bit of a touchy subject. People don't usually like church discipline. And they don't want to talk about it. And often for good reason. Uh, It has been absolutely abused in the past. But nevertheless, it's a gift from Christ himself. It's a key to the kingdom of heaven. And it's helpful to think about it the way that I mentioned already before. If preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ is this gospel applied corporately, then church discipline should be the gospel of Jesus Christ applied individually. Being locked out of the kingdom of God is, of course, an incredibly serious thing. And so God has given the church a heavy task of opening the kingdom by the public, the corporate proclamation of the gospel. But also to look out for individuals. And when necessary, go to them and bring them the gospel personally in the form of church discipline. And if you do look at Matthew 18, I encourage you to read it later. Uh, you'll see that, first of all, it's not the elders who are called to take action and apply the gospel to individuals, though they are called to do it too. That's an important part of their task. But in the context of church discipline, first it is regular church members, like you and me. We're called to take action in regards to church discipline. Jesus tells us in Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go. Go. And tell him his fault between you and him alone. 
If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And this was pointed out to me recently. I hear Jesus gives very clear instructions, and often uh, we don't really like them. We'd rather not follow them. Uh, What do we often like to do uh, when there's sin in one of our relationships, and a relationship is damaged or hurt or broken? What do we like to do when we sin against someone else, and it creates some tension and some awkwardness? I think often we like to hang tight, don't we? If they were offended by me, they can come and talk to me. Sound familiar? Uh, I think that's what we usually like to do. And then likewise, when someone else sins against us, well then we like to hang tight. They sinned against us, well they should come and apologize. Right? That's on them. But Jesus actually gives us very clear teaching here. Uh, In Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 to 24, Jesus tells us, If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, that is, that you sinned against somebody else, then what does Jesus say to do? Leave your gifts before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And so if you think your brother was offended by you, that you sinned against your brother then Jesus tells you this is a high priority. You go. You go to restore the relationship. But then in Matthew 18, uh, Jesus says, he he flips the script. He says, if your brother has sinned against you, and so it seems the situation's reversed, so if I sin, okay, I get it. I guess I need to go. But if someone else has sinned, then we just get to wait, right? But Jesus makes it clear again. Here too, the onus is on you. If your brother has sinned against you, you go. If you're the one who sinned against them, well, you go. There's no situation where we're called to be comfortable and sit back and grumble. In both cases, we're called to act first. And we read in Matthew 18 that if someone sins against you, you're called to go and confront their fault. You're called to go rebuke them. First, keeping things just confidential, just between you and them. And then if that fails over time... Well, then you bring a few friends along, some people who can uh, back you up, but also make sure that you're approaching things well. And then finally, if that still fails, then you can bring it to the leaders, to the elders of the church. And the church will do the same thing. And if we're going to keep this commandment of Christ, then we need to remember always what character this discipline should have. Because church discipline isn't going to someone, of course, for revenge. Church discipline isn't going to someone to punish them for their sin. And it's important to remember, if you're going to confront someone for their sin, you're not even first and foremost going looking for an apology. You're not even first and foremost going looking for justice, or not for human justice, at least. Of course, God cares when somebody hurts us. Human justice does matter to God. And when our brother or sister sins against us, God is angry, and it matters to God. He tells us that he writes our hurts on a scroll and that he keeps our tears in a jar. But the top priority in church discipline isn't, first of all, getting an apology. It's not getting uh, human justice, but first of all, looking towards divine justice. To make the person not right with me, but first of all, to make them right with God. That's what we read together in Matthew 5, isn't it? 
If you're about to make your uh, sacrifice to God, first go and apologize to your brother. Why? To make your relationship right with God before you offer your sacrifice. The primary goal uh, of confronting someone in their sin is repentance. Not first of all towards you, though that should come to, but first of all towards God. Not that your brother might turn away from his sin and turn back to you, but that your brother might turn from his sin and turn back to Christ. And that there, at the foot of Christ, he might receive divine justice, costly forgiveness, not cheap forgiveness. That he might receive forgiveness from Jesus Christ that cost Christ his life. And then, of course, after that, you emphasize human justice as well. If that's unclear, uh, one commentary uh, gives an example that I think really helps explain. So imagine, for example, or just for a minute, that you have $15,000 to spare. Nice thing to imagine, right? But then you lend it to someone in the church who really needs it. And eventually, they refuse to pay it back. Now you're out $15,000, which is a lot of money. And so you go to follow the steps in Matthew 8, church discipline. First, you go by yourself and you talk to them about it. Then you start going with some friends because they, they won't listen, they won't repent. And then finally, you bring it to the elders. But each step of the way, what should your goal back, your goal be in this situation? It shouldn't be primarily, it shouldn't be first and foremost to get your money back. It shouldn't be first and foremost to get them to apologize to you. It should be first and foremost to get them to admit to God that what they did was sinful. What they did was wrong. To turn from their sin and go to Christ and ask them to forgive them and to transform them. And of course, if you succeed by God's grace and they truly repent, then you can expect to see the fruit of repentance. They'll make plans to return your money. But you know what's worth far more than $15,000? Is this person's soul. Is this person's relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're concerned that they're living in unrepentant sin, you shouldn't be concerned first of all about your money, but you should first of all be concerned with their relationship with Christ. Not with this life and the money here, but with eternal life. And so the point of church discipline is to uh, lovingly uh, strive to see no one shut out of heaven. And often church discipline can be uncomfortable. You have to have some uh, adult, uh, uh, really respectful, uh, really measured conversations. But these conversations are worth it. Uh, We have to remember, though, that rebukes don't always have to be harsh. Uh, Especially... Because we need to remember that the message of discipline is the same as the message of preaching. The message of discipline must always be the gospel message. And again, this commentary that I mentioned earlier on the catechism, it it recommends that we start with ourselves when we talk about church discipline. We're all called to live disciplined lives, so begin by taking the gospel of Jesus Christ and our new identity with him. And start with the log in our own eye first. Start looking through our lives, looking at our deeds, 
looking at our words and our thoughts and start looking for places where our, heart, our hands aren't clean and where our thoughts and heart aren't pure. And start off by disciplining and rebuking ourselves with the gospel. Reminding ourselves that we're not sinful people anymore. We're not enslaved to our sin. We have a great Savior who has freed us. Look for areas where our life just does not match up with our confession of who Jesus Christ is. If we're continuing to dwell in the same patterns of sin and there's no movement, no breaking through, then just question whether we're our life is matching up with our confession of who Jesus Christ is, the one who has freed us from our sin. We ask ourselves if our, our thoughts about our value and our worth and who we are, if they line up with our confession of our new identity as children of God in Christ, as redeemed sinners, as saints in him. And then from there, we can uh, look towards others. We can do the same for our kids and for spouse and friends and church family, looking with the utmost humility because we see how far short we fall of living lives worthy of the gospel. But we can challenge one another's thinking with the good news of Jesus Christ, gently challenging people, the way that they talk, the way that they think, reminding them of who Jesus Christ is and just what he has done, reminding them that they're not righteous and they never will be on their own. But in Jesus Christ, they are righteous. They are being purified. They are being transformed in increasing measure into his likeness. And one day, they will live with him and walk with him in the garden as they were created to do. Often we can wait uh, for church discipline, wait until a sin is so apparent or, or apathy goes so far that the church needs to get involved and step in. But that's not the model we have in Matthew 18. We're each called to go. And if we have sinned, to go and address that sin. And if someone else has sinned, to go and lovingly rebuke them with the gospel. Uh, Unfortunately, though, sometimes, as we read in Matthew 18, the leadership does need to get involved. The elders do need to come and say, Brother or sister, you profess to believe in Jesus Christ. And by profession of faith, we've affirmed that we think or we thought that you believed in Christ. We affirm that your sins were forgiven and the way to heaven was open, at least by your confession. But it's come to the point where based on your life, based on your disregard for Christ, based on your constant refusal to repent and go to Christ for forgiveness and transformation, sometimes uh, the elders need to tell people, we believe for you the gate is actually still closed. And it breaks the elders' hearts when they have to do that. They have to say that we think the gate is still closed. The angels are still standing guard. The flaming sword is still standing tall, blocking your way back to God. And you tell people in love, we believe you need to repent. Turn from your sin, of course, and turn to Jesus Christ, the one with the key. Because we all fall short in so many ways. We all sin constantly. But Jesus Christ is the way back to God. And what Jesus Christ tells us is that whoever comes to him, he will never cast out. And as we read together in Revelation 3 as well, Jesus tells us that the ones who believe in him, uh, for them the gate to heaven is opened. And we read in Revelation 3, what Christ has opened, no one can shut. What a comforting thought for sinful people like us. 
Knowing that Jesus is the gate and he's opened the way and if he's opened it for us, no one can shut it. If only we believe in him and come to him with repentant hearts. Your brothers and sisters, let's never forget the good news and let's always remember the bad news as well. That by nature we're locked out. But as long as we turn from our sins, as long as we have Jesus Christ, we will never find ourselves without a key. Amen.